So this is, uh, <clears throat> this is from a wife's journal. Tonight my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. And I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said, I'm not upset. That has nothing to do with me, not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him I loved him, and he smiled slightly, and he kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent, and finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I still felt that he was distracted, and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what to do. Same, uh, same couple, the husband's journal. Rough day. The boat wouldn't start. Can't figure out why. <laughs> Same reaction last night. I tried to deliver it better. Well, you know, kind of a stereotypical there a little bit. You know, the guy that doesn't talk. Um, in, in my relationship with Lois, it's the other way around. I'm the talker. So if you're a wife who wishes your husband talked more, you can talk to her about it. And what she will tell you when you have a husband that does talk a lot, she, she will tell you it's exhausting. That's, that's the best thing I can say. She has said that more than once. Uh, on a more serious note, what we're looking at today is what do we do when we, we're talking to God and we're having a conversation with God and all we get back from him is silence. Uh, we, we're not hearing from him. We need to hear, we desperately need to hear from him. We need... Uh, we need direction, or we need comfort, we need something, and all we get from him is silence. And we're looking at that because we're in a series called Jesus the Savior, a uh, brand new series that we're starting today, it's a mini-series, within the larger series as we work our way through the New Testament. And in today's passage, we see Jesus, Jesus himself, confronted with the silence of God. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, I think this, maybe it is chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And if, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, and it's page 996 because we're beginning uh, partway through that chapter, about halfway through it in verse uh, 36 of that chapter. Um, if you're brand new with us, uh, we have inside the New Here brochure, hopefully you got it, we got a sermon application guide, and there's uh, some of the key ideas from the sermon are in there, but most importantly, there's on the inside, there are some questions for families, and so we're back on track after our three-week series on family, we're back on track where the kids, and we are doing the same thing each week, so uh, the kids down at the other end are studying the same question, are, are, are do doing the same passage, so here's some questions that you can use. Also, there's some reflection questions, small group questions. And this is about bringing the story of God to life. And it's not just about getting more information into our heads. So I recommend, uh, re recommend using it. Um, okay, so Jesus experienced God's silence when he prays a desperate prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So right before this, uh, Jesus has celebrated the Lord's Supper, the first one. He's instituted the Lord's Supper in the passage right before this. And after that's done, he and the disciples go to a garden right close to the temple. 
and it's an olive garden, and it's known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And he begins to pray to God the Father, and he experiences the silence of God. So if you're in one of those periods right now where you are experiencing, you know, you're, you're praying desperate prayers, and what you feel you're receiving from God is nothing, so you are, you're experiencing the silence of God, my hope is that before today is over, before this service is over, that you'll hear from God. And if you've quit praying because you had experienced what you felt was the silence of God, my hope and prayer is that you'll start praying again. So we pick up the story in verse 36, Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So he takes the inner circle of the 12 disciples and he, takes the, and he takes them a little further into the garden and he is troubled and he's sorrowful. He knows what's coming. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in our story of God experience that we love everybody at Five Oaks to go through at some point, we spend some time in this because that cup that he's talking about is a cup of God's wrath against sin, God's judgment against sin. Jesus is not overwhelmed and sorrowful here because he's going to uh, experience a horrible death. He's overwhelmed and sorrowful because he's going to experience God the Father's wrath because he's going to take sin on himself on the cross. Verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, Unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back and he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So what do we do when we experience the silence of God and we're praying desperate prayers? We need to remember some things, and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to remember, I want to suggest that you remember three things when you're having that kind of experience. And the first one is, hearing from God in a crisis takes more time, takes more time to hear from God in a crisis when we weren't listening to God before the crisis. If we're not in a habit of prayer, we're not in a habit of listening to God and then we find ourselves in a crisis and we're praying, it's going to be harder, not impossible, it's going to be harder to hear from God. Prayer is hard enough. Prayer is hard. And it's hard enough for those who practice it regularly, even harder in a crisis when we haven't been practicing it at all. So the best way to prepare to hear from God in a crisis is to be praying and developing a habit of speaking with God and learning how to listen to him before the crisis. You say, well, how do I begin 
praying uh, before the crisis? Well, let me just a couple suggestions. One is uh, right from the mouth of the Apostle Paul, which is devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to the discipline and the rituals of prayer. So in Colossians 4.2, Apostle Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now, he says that because it's difficult, because it's not easy. You don't have to say, you don't have to tell someone to devote themselves to something if it comes naturally, if it's easy, if it's something that they are already doing on a regular basis. But it's hard to pray. So the Apostle Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. <clears throat> and prayer doesn't come without discipline. There's a certain amount of discipline that we have to have in order to break away from all the things that are, that are you know, pulling us away from the idea of stopping and praying or even the things that are taking our mind to keep us from praying while we're living our lives. Um, uh, it's impossible to do that without some discipline, and it's impossible to have disciplines without rituals. We have to have rituals in our lives. So uh, Luke, for example, when he reports on this same scene, okay, so the Gospel of Luke, when he reports on the same scene, they've left the uh, supper, and now they're going out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is what he says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. So it was his habit to do this. It was a place where he would take his disciples, and it was a place they would go to prayer. Uh, John 18 also lifts up the curtain a little bit and says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This was a place of prayer. It was like there's a ritual in their life where they go there regularly to pray. Now the interesting thing is that also gives you a little peek into what it means that Judas betrayed him. Because the problem for the officials who are trying to arrest Jesus is they can't arrest him during the day because it could create a riot. He's too popular. So they need to arrest him at night. Presumably, he's hiding at night. The authorities don't know where he is. And uh, one of his things he would do is he'd go outside of Jerusalem, just outside, there's a, there's a valley right there next to the, the walls of the temple, and he would cross in there, and there's a, an olive grove that's still there today with trees that are as old as 1,500 years, and uh, um, some people say could, there could be some trees there that are there when Jesus was in the Mount of Olives. So they, we, they know where it is, not exactly, but uh, it's, it's known approximately where this is. Now, if you come from certain church traditions, like our church tradition, if you want to say our church tradition, churches like, like ours over the years, there's a lot of things we have to unlearn along the way. Every tradition has things that we have to unlearn from our tradition. And one of them from our tradition in particular um, is the idea that you cannot pray someone else's prayers. That you've got to pray spontaneously. Some of you grew up in churches that said, some, others of you, this is not the case, but some of you grew up being told you can't pray somebody else's prayers. You have to pray your own prayers. It has to be your own words. It has to be from the heart and it has to be your own words. Um, and the reality is you read Jesus, you read the Gospels, and Jesus prayed set prayers all the time. I don't mean every time, but he prayed set prayers. He would have started his day in the same way every uh, Jewish person would have started their prayer with the Shema. 
Um, he prays the Psalms. We see him praying the Psalms. We see him on the cross praying the Psalms. Almost every word out of his mouth is from the Psalms while he's on the cross. And he's praying. He's speaking to God using the words of, of Scripture. Um, now, it is a problem. Here's the real problem. If the only prayers you pray are set prayers. In other words, if you can never get to the point where you can use your own words in prayer to God, you probably have a little bit of a problem praying. The reality is you can pray set prayers, you can pray your own prayers, your own words, and not pray from the heart. We've all done that, right? And on the other hand, you can pray someone else's prayers or scripture prayers and pray them from the heart. Yes, you can ab absolutely do that. It's a false dichotomy to say you can only you know, pray prayers that are spontaneous and not set prayers. Same with rituals. We need rituals in our lives. We need morning rituals to get to work or school on time. If you're a student and you're a studious student, you have rituals that help you get into a study mentality, you know, a place of study. We need rituals. Um, if you uh, play an instrument, if you're in sports, you have certain practice rituals. There are all kinds of rituals. We have to have these rituals. We can't rethink it every single time. Now, how am I going to go to work today? You know, what route? No, you find yourself at work all of a sudden. You're like, wow, I don't even remember doing this. Why? Because there are rituals that we have to have in our lives. They help life go on. And we need rituals that help us get into prayer so that we're we're in the, the mental state of being able to communicate with God. So that's one of the ways, if you want to start, restart prayer in your life, uh, you need some of the discipline uh, and you need some of the rituals of, of prayer. Uh, Jesus uh, even taught his disciples a set prayer. Jesus taught us a set prayer. When, he, when they ask him in Luke 11, they say, teach us to pray. He says, when you pray, say this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So say this. These are the words that he says that you are to say. Not you know, something like this. He actually says, pray this, pray this prayer. Now, all that being said, focus on the relationship, not the ritual. Focus on the relationship. Don't focus on the ritual. This is a great point that Paul Miller in his book, The Praying Life, makes. He says, um, when you're driving, you don't focus on the windshield right? When you're driving, you look through the windshield to the outside. If I could have that, that next slide, please. You're looking out across. You're, you're not looking at the windshield if you're going to drive. He says, prayer is the windshield. You don't pray by focusing on prayer. You pray by focusing on the relationship that you're experiencing with God, the conversation that you're having with God. That's how you learn to pray. Focus on being with God, talking to him, hearing from him. Now, <clears throat> what if you're in a crisis right now? You say, and I haven't been praying. Uh, I, I've, not, I've not been praying, and I'm not hearing from God, and now I hear from you that if I haven't been praying before the crisis, I'm going to have a hard time hearing from God in the crisis. The reality is, Jesus says, if we build our house on sand... Uh, what happens is when life gets really tough, the house just blows away. We build our house on a rock, 
we can make it through the crises of life. And that's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying, look, you can look at my teaching. You can build your house on a rock or you can build your life on sand, everything else, and find yourself in difficult situations and find yourself absolutely at a loss. So if you've been building your life on sand, because a prayerless life from the perspective of Jesus would be a life built on sand. If you've been building your life on sand, maybe you're religious and maybe you're doing a lot of things, maybe you're doing a lot of things for God, but you're not praying. My suggestion to you is find a rock and start building. Find a rock and start building. Start devoting yourself to prayer now. Uh, Because it's, God, just because you weren't listening to God before the crisis, God's not going to turn away from you in the crisis. The problem is not God. The problem is not that God is going to, like, turn his back to you. Well, you weren't praying for me before the crisis. God uses crises to get our attention. When people say, well, yeah, he didn't admit it until he got caught, or she didn't, you know, repent until it was pointed out. Exactly. (laughs) That's the way it works. It's, it's the wake-up call, and God receives that. God doesn't use those kinds of lines. A few years ago, a friend of mine was looking for a job, and uh, I asked him how I was going. He said, it's going okay, but I, th- I think I need to set up a website, and the website, um, he wanted to set up a website because he had a portfolio of the stuff, that, some of his work, and he wanted to put it on the website. So he says, I called my brother, who develops websites, and he answered the phone, And he said, hey, hey, I'm in the middle of something right now. Can I call you back at 4 o'clock? Sure. So 4 o'clock, my friend gets a phone call from his brother, and his brother's just calling back the number, you know, 4 o'clock. He calls back the number, and his brother says, hey, this is a really awkward question, but who are you? He neither recognized his brother's voice, nor did he have his brother's number in his phone. Okay, those are brothers that don't talk very much, right? Right? Here's, here's the great thing. When all of a sudden, out of the blue, because you're in a crisis, you haven't been talking to God before the crisis, and you start talking to God in the crisis, he is not going to ask the awkward question. He's going to welcome the conversation. He's, he, he's going to be joyful that you've re-entered into a conversation with him. Okay, so remember, it is going to be harder. And prayer is hard, even for those who practice it regularly. It's hard. It's hard to hear from God in prayer. It's hard to talk to God in prayer. So second thing, when you find yourself in a crisis, praying desperate prayers, and God is, seems silent to you, remember this, that God speaks even when he is silent. God uses quiet in our lives. He speaks even when he's silent. I've told this story before, um, about a lab in South Minneapolis. It is, uh, it is this soundproof room that a lot of companies use it for testing various things. Whirlpool does, NASA uses it, Harley-Davidson uses it. Uh, it's called, um, I think, Orfield Laboratories. And it's got like these, like a foot of concrete. It's got like another couple of feet of, of all this foam. It's got double steel on the walls. It's 99.99% soundproof room. And the creator of it, Stephen Orfield, he, um, he says that when he's in that room, he can hear the ticking of his artificial var- valve in his heart. It's that quiet. 
And he said, the quieter the room, the more things you will hear. What might God want you to hear in the silence that you can't hear apart from the silence? How is God using the silence to actually speak down deep into your heart? He might be doing that. God speaks in the silence. And when you hear God speak, or when you recall this this third thing that we need to remember, one of the things that you will hear is God reminding you that Jesus endured silence so that you can experience God's presence. That's what this whole passion narrative is all about, his arrest that's coming, we'll look at next week, the cross, being on the cross. That's what this is all about. It's, God enduring God's, it's Jesus enduring God's silence so that he can experience God's presence. Jesus was always praying. He's always communicating with God. You read the, the Gospels and he's constantly going off by himself. And he, in, in John's Gospel, in the upper room, he, he tells the disciples a lot about his relationship with God and God the Father and how, as God the Son, he and the Father, how they work together and how he does nothing without hearing from the Father. It's like the Father says what to do, and I do it. That's what my life is about. It's all about doing what God has called me to do. Jesus knew how to pray. He knew how to hear God, and still he experiences struggle in the prayer in the garden. So Jesus prayed the same prayer three times. Look at verse 44. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying, the same thing. Why is Jesus praying the same prayer three times? There's really only one explanation. You might come up with other explanations, but they're not good. There's only one explanation. He's not getting an answer. He's praying this prayer, and God's not giving him an answer. I find it very difficult to believe that he is like bargaining with God or begging God that the answer, he doesn't like the answer, and so he's asking again, hoping it's going to be, it's not what's happening here. He's not hearing from God, so he has to pray it three times. God was truly silent in that moment in a way that was unprecedented for Jesus, God the Son, who has been one with the Father since all of eternity. He's experiencing, as God the Son incarnate, he's experiencing silence from God the Father. For all we know, he would have gone back and prayed a fourth time, and a fifth time, and a sixth time. We don't know. It's just three times. But we don't know that he wouldn't have gone back to pray, except that God spoke He doesn't go back to a fourth time because God spoke, but God doesn't speak with audible words in this case. God speaks as he often does. He speaks with action. Because what does he see? He sees his betrayer coming. We saw that in verse 46. He's telling them, come on, can't you? He goes back. They're still sleeping. For all we know, he's going to go back, but he looks up and he sees the betrayer coming. And there's his answer. To his prayer. So pick up in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. 
and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, uh, in this telling of it, we don't know who it is. We do know from John that this is Peter, and it fits with Peter. Uh, leave it to Peter to be the disciple who's packing. <laughs> and, uh, and he pulls it out, and he cuts off the ear of one of the um, of of this this servant. Now, when there's a group of us that went to Israel earlier this year, and and one of the things that our teacher explained to us is uh, this is not like he went for the head and got only the ear and didn't get anything else. This is he went for the ear, and the the reason that we're that he could be pretty sure and saying went for the ear is because of who this man is, who we're told in John, uh, a little bit more about him by the John's, in John's gospel. And secondly, because of a story that everyone there knew, uh, a well-known story. And so this man is the assistant to the high priest, which doesn't mean you know, he goes and gets the high priest his coffee. It means the high priest is not able to perform his duties. This guy does. He's a priest, and he performs his his duties for him. And so uh, there's, a, there's a story from the intertestamental period, almost surely actually happened. Uh, it's be, intertestamental meaning the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, there were several books that were written, and uh, historical books and some wisdom books, and in one of them it tells a story about a high priest who rises to a position of prominence, a true historical person, and a rebel who's fighting the Jewish authorities and is very angry that this guy is not a descendant of Aaron. You cannot be a priest without being a descendant of Aaron, but politics of the day, this guy is part of this kind of this ruling family and they place him as the high priest. Uh, devout Jews are not happy with this at all. So the rebel says, hey, we want to we we have discussions with you about peace and they come together as an act of showing I want to be at peace with you. He comes to embrace the priest, and they embrace each other. And while they're embracing, he bites off a piece of his ear. And the reason is, if you know your Old Testament, a priest who has a physical blemish cannot serve as priest. And so if a priest is butchering a calf that was used in... Uh, uh, in, in um, sacrifices and slips and cut off a piece of his finger. He's done. He's retired. And so this is, this is almost surely a, a way of sending a message and of ruining a man's life uh, at the same time. So pick up in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I always thought, just right now, it just hit me. I always thought this was said to the crowd that came to get him. I think this is said to Peter. It's like, I don't need your sword. I don't need you to defend. I have legions of angels at my disposal. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled 
that say it must happen this way, which he has been telling the disciples now on their way to Jerusalem over and over again. Remember what Peter's reaction was when he said, I, I must go? Jesus said, I must go and I must die. And Peter says, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, I am, leading, am I leading a rebellion that you have to come with your swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me? But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And there's a lot of meaning in this. Because disciples did not first kiss. Disciple did not come up to a rabbi in greeting and kiss. The rabbi always kissed the disciple. Then the disciple could kiss the rabbi. When Judas does this, when he says, I'm going to show you who he is by kissing him, and he comes and he says, hello, rabbi, and he gives him a kiss, he's saying, I am equal to you. It's, it's a diss for a rabbi. I'm independent from you. You're no longer my rabbi. Tim Keller comments on how this is a picture of sin. He says, sin is an act of rebellion and a declaration of independence from God. And it's like, I'm not going to listen to God, I'm going to do my own thing. And then he illustrates it, what's going on here, by saying, imagine a single mom who doesn't have a a whole lot of money, but she works extra jobs and she slaves to save enough money to put her son in college and he goes off to college and he squanders the whole year and all of her money. And then he comes home and he says, hi mom, and he gives her a kiss and asks for more money. He says, what happens in this situation? What's happening in that situation? He says, that son is breaking the mother's heart. That's what's happening. He's breaking the mother's heart. And Keller said, sin isn't just trampling on the laws of God. Sin is trampling on the heart of God. And you see it all throughout Scripture. God crying out because we're trampling all over him and all over his heart. Jesus goes to the cross because of our kiss. This is... This is at the core of the gospel story. And it's the gospel that we have to return to. When we're experiencing God's silence in a time where we're praying desperate prayers, we have to go back to the gospel. We, gotta go, we have to go back to the story. And the gospel is the whole story of God. Uh, this whole story that, that is moving towards Jesus and finds its climax in Jesus. The story that fulfills everything that's happening in the Old Testament is saying that at some point God himself is going to take on himself the penalty of our sin. It's all throughout the Old Testament. God himself is going to take on the penalty of our sin. Jesus endured God the Father's silence so that we can experience God's presence. He gets silence because he is about to take sin of the world upon himself. It's all part of what's happening there. In 1991, a car driven by a drunk driver uh, went over the curb, jumped the curb, and went head-on into uh, a van driven by a man named Jerry Stitzer. Sitzer. And um, he had four children. Three survived. His four-year-old died. 
His wife died who was in the van, and his mother died who was in the van. And he's written a lot about dealing with anguish and dealing with uh, grief and loss as a, as a follower of Jesus. And uh, a lot of profound reflections on loss in his books. And he's got a book called A Grace Revealed where he shares uh, this story about his son David and how he responded to the accident. He says, my son David is and always has been quiet and reflective. After the accident, he was the least likely to talk about it. But when he chose to, he usually had something significant to say or ask. I had to be ready to respond to him when he sent cues indicating that he was about to talk. Our best conversations happened in the car. One particular conversation has stayed fresh in my memory. David was eight at the time. We were driving to a soccer match some distance from our home. Typical of these occasions, David was quiet. The car was full of silence. Not a heavy silence, but a liquid silence as if some question was brewing inside him. Do you think mom sees us right now? He asked suddenly. I paused to ponder. I don't know, David. I think maybe she does see us. Why do you ask? I don't see how she could, Dad. I thought heaven was full of happiness. How could she bear to see us so sad? Could Lydia, could Linda witness our pain in heaven? How could that be possible? How could she bear it? I think she does see us, I finally said. But she sees the whole story, including how it all turns out, which is beautiful to her. It's going to be a good story, David. And then he adds this. He says, I would not hazard to estimate the number of times I have asked, I have been asked, how does Christianity answer the problem of suffering? The Christian answer to suffering is Christ's suffering and Christ's resurrection. God knows pain within himself. God knows joy within himself. He knows the whole story at once including how it all turns out, which is glorious indeed. Let's pray.